Oh, okay. Go ahead. Cool. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host for today, Daniel, one of the mentors and educators at the Knowledge Exchange. And we are lucky enough to be joined by Mr. Walt Fritz, all the way from the other side of the globe. So, Walt, whereabouts are you exactly at the moment? I'm in, well, I'm in my office right now, but um, that's in the area of Rochester, New York, which is about five and a half hours uh, west of New York City, uh, upstate New York. Uh, awesome. So, awesome. so, so, yeah. so a little bit far from Manhattan. Uh, yeah, yeah, about five, six hours. Yes. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So, so Walt has been hugely influential in the way that I tend to view manual therapy nowadays. I've had plenty of discussions with people who've taken his course and I've looked into the resources that he provides. I really admire his, his approach. So I know that there's going to be a, some valuable takeaways here from not only the manual therapists, but the exercise movement-based professionals so that we can have a kind of common language when we talk about working with patients with pain. So really excited today to, to pick your brain, Walt. Great. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, before I say anything, I want to you know, kind of pass along my, uh, my condolences, if you will, for what's going on in your country right now. I, I, you know, I've been there a few times in the last couple of years, and it's just um, it's heartbreaking. It's got to be for, for you living there as well. And anyway, my, my thoughts are with you right now. So. Thank you for that. Thank you. It's, it's, a, yes. it's a tough time yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So, so Walt, I, I like to ask this question. It's a, it's a Peter O'Sullivan-esque question. What's your story? My story, uh, my story, my story, I'm a physical therapist. I've been one for a long time now. Um, 1985, started in the physical therapy profession. Um, you know, I kind of did a smattering, a lot of different things, pediatrics, um, early intervention, general hospital, developmental disabilities, home care, kind of the gamut of what a PT can do, at least around here. Um, in 1992, I started my manual therapy saga, my mouthwash release saga, doubt, jumping down the rabbit hole of mouthwash release and lesser so to cranial psychotherapy. And I kind of, I got sucked into that rabbit hole, um, head first, feet sticking out and never left for a couple decades. Meaning I bought into the fascial narrative. I bought into the emotions are stored in fascia. I bought into, um, we're the only ones that can truly heal a patient. It's, uh, a lot of really, really bad stories, but uh, you know, I was I was not a very good critical thinker, and um, I went there. So I was, uh, you know, what I learned a lot. I learned some very good skills with my hands. I think I learned some pretty bad skills with my brain in terms of how I assessed what I was doing, how I assessed the evidence, how I dismissed evidence that really didn't confirm my bias, um, and. That's, that's a big part of my story and why I'm here. And then about almost 15 years ago now, I, I, I left slash got kicked out of that rabbit hole, that mouthwash really rabbit hole. Um, depends on who you ask whether, I, whether they say I left or got kicked out. But um, that's a story for another podcast. Um, I, I met, met some people along the way that kind of mentored me. Um, crossing the chasm, as some people like to to say, from that tissue-based story, the fascia-based story, into neurologic narratives, into behavioral narratives, into maybe looking at the cascade of, of influencers that can be at play when we do manual therapy, when we do exercise-based therapy, heck, when we engage with a human being, right? Instead of it being about one story, 
it's it's a multitude of stories and i love that right now i love the uncertainty of our profession i love teaching uncertainty i love watching people squirm with uncertainty because we're not used to that. We're used to thinking, okay, um, right now I'm affecting, you know, I'm affecting that joint. I'm affecting that trigger point. I'm doing this for weakness, right? Without realizing that, you know, there's a head and a brain and a central nervous system and a history and, a, and attached to that. And I just, I love that uncertainty and working from there. So that's who I am right now. It's about um, teaching a model of manual therapy that honors the uncertainty, but looking at the plausible explanations for what might be at play. It's amazing. So going from a few rabbit holes, going from 20 years of, of kind of the, you had kind of certain narratives as to what you were doing, why you were doing it. You had a certain story and then your, it sounds like your worldview was, was crashed. So that, that sounds like a, yeah, yeah, very much so. And um, it what was hard kind to of, take. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, what, what were the kind of, if you uh, can recall, as long as there's not too much trauma involved, if you recall that era, what would you say yeah. were your thought processes during that time? Because I, I imagine there would have been a bit of backfire. Uh, there, there was a lot of rebellion on my part, a lot of pushback. Um, there's a, um, a, at least a semi-famous thread on a, on a forum site called Soma Simple that sort of um, categorizes my demise or at least categorizes who I was before myofascial release the great conversation unfortunately has been viewed by a lot of people I say unfortunately because it really shows me behaving like an ass in terms of um, being so pig-headed of what I was taught and not listening to what some really smart people were offering up to me now they don't have all the answers either they didn't nobody really does right but um, that was really hard. That was hard because it went nowhere. But then after that, once I, I left that community, trying to figure out, okay, here's all these other stories of what happens when we do manual therapy, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter any kind of manual therapy. When we touch a human being, all these different stories of what's happening, it was tough to wade through. And it took me, it took me a good 10 years to kind of get to where I am. And that's, um, I'm not committing to one story. I'm committing to knowing it could be a lot of different things. Um, ultimately, that's why I've developed kind of the approach that I do. Instead of it being about the tissue-based story, um, or even that that muscle or exercise or weakness or strengthening-based story, I make it about the patient themselves and what they feel um, would be beneficial to them. I I demand that my patients be a full and active participant with my process. About the therapeutic alliance that we build with each other, that the relationship is is what we build and how they help me determine what will be helpful for them versus me telling what's best for them. It's amazing. So it's a, it's a two way street. It's always a bit of yeah. a dance between mm -hmm. what they think is the problem and what you yeah. see, what you, what is presented to you and yeah. how they respond and react to your treatment, to your touch. Exactly. Exactly. And often what they think is the problem is a product of all the uh, sorry, I'm a little crass. All the garbage stories that everybody else has told them. You know, I know that I've got my work cut out for me when a patient comes in to see me and said, well, my last therapist said, and you know that here comes, here comes the nocebo. Here comes all the crap that they're going to tell me about what somebody else told was wrong with that, right? Um, I love a clean slate when you get somebody for the first time, but nobody's devoid of beliefs and, and um, thoughts of what's wrong with them, right? They blame their posture. They blame their weakness. They blame their computer or phone or whatever, right? And you know what? I, I don't dispel those myths or those beliefs. It's just, okay, that could be true, but 
can we allow you to look at your cell phone and have less neck pain, right? Um, that's really what I want to do. So let's bypass what you think it might be. Um, sure, we can look at that if you want, but can we move on to something that you find would be useful instead of looking at blame and all those other things? Amazing. It's like you're diffusing the, the unhelpful belief in a way. You're, you're working with it as opposed to dismissing it completely. But that, exactly, right? Um, I, I would never dismiss it, you know, even though I might think, God, that sounds kind of silly. Um, but to that person, it means a lot. It has great somebody in their life, um, whether it's their doctor or their last therapist or Dr. Google, somebody in their life told them that this was what was wrong with them. I don't want to be the person because I don't know if it's not, right? It might be, it might not be, but can we do something right now in this moment that you feel is helpful? Awesome. And, and looking back to the, you mentioned it took about 10 years before you, or it was a process of 10 years to change your practice. Did I, did I hear you correctly? Mm -hmm. Roughly? Um, gradual, yep, yep, yep. I mean, I, I, I kind of toyed with how different models felt, that neurological, that skin-based, that DNM, dermal neuromodulation model. I owe a lot to, um, to Diane Jacobs, to kind of holding my hand, if you will, kind of crossing the bridge from the MFR-based approach to the, at least the neurocentric approach. And, you know, I think Diane's got a lot of really interesting ideas in terms of, um, first of all, what are we touching? And can that, the skin that we're touching, can that explain some of the changes we see in our patients? And you know, I really do think it does explain a lot. Is it all of it? Probably not. But, um, you know, I owe a lot to people like that. It was, it was interesting. It was hard. Um, I got a huge amount of pushback from my old community. Um, for the healers that they say they are, they're nasty when they're provoked. But I guess we all are when we have to defend our turf. So it was a hard 10 years, but really meaningful and in the long run beneficial for me and my patients and hopefully the people who, who train with me as well. That's awesome. So you, so you met with a few barriers with people that identified with, with the narratives, with your in-group mm -hmm. that you belong to. And it sounded like you were even a part of that in-group from the start with, with the, the evidence is on Soma Simple. Was that? You mean, you mean the, the first one when I was fighting for, when I was defending my turf, defending my mentor, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we, we, we you know, that Malfash for this community, there, there's a body of evidence that we use and they still use to support that work. Um, my issue with that evidence, my issue with the trigger point evidence, my issue with the exercise evidence, my issue with all the rabbit holes of evidence is, you know what, you start looking around and you start seeing what other people are doing and they're having success as well. If it's all about the trigger points and only your evidence is good, why is it that somebody else doing totally different work is helping people move along in life too? And I think that was one of the greatest lessons for me is take a look at what other people are doing. And I may not want to become that person in terms of how they do it, but I can't be in this, this, this vacuum perceiving that that I've got all the answers and I don't think any of us do I think a lot of us learn recipes based on some of that information um, that we can take to our patients and help them I think that's a really good take-home lesson and what's on me yeah and so uh, there's more there's more than one recipe as well so it's it's a way to reflect yeah. on your own biases as opposed to thinking that you have the best recipe absolutely yeah Absolutely. And you know, there's lots of recipes I don't even know about that people are helping. You and I see stuff on the internet every day that sounds crazy. It sounds hokey. It sounds gimmicky. But you know, yeah, what they're, they're selling it, they're marketing the whole thing, but I'm sure they're helping people too. And is it placebo based? Is it, is it tissue based? Is it weakness? Who knows, right? In some ways that gimmicky type of intervention is helping someone.
not that I want to become a gimmick because I don't think that's genuine and valid for patients, but um, you know, a lot of different works work. And, and we're taught a lot of, um, a lot of students, new grads are brought up in a system of thinking that there is only one way or there are mm -hmm. certain answers to the exams. So, mm -hmm. so looking at the, now the way that you teach and how you help people, how you demonstrate your, your learnings and your approach, what are some of the challenges that you find with people that expect that kind of certain framework, that one recipe that answers all their questions? Yeah. Um, yeah, initially they're disappointed. Initially they're irritated. Initially they're, they're kind of pissed off at me because I'm not, I'm not feeding them on a plate um, a, a certain story, right? I, in the seminars that I teach now, and a lot of them are my neck voice and swallowing um, disorder seminar, caters to the needs of the speech pathologist, the speech therapist, but I get a lot of physios and massage therapists coming to that class as well. So picture a class where you've got um, therapists coming in on one side with a lot of prior experience in manual therapies, right? Um, and then you've got a whole group of people coming in with little, if any, experience in manual therapy, right? Because the people with all the experience um, are challenged in a way that they really start to vibrate in a really negative way. It's like, you know what, you're really challenging everything that I've not only been taught, but that I've witnessed, right? Because I saw the story that I learned in MFR working with people. People were, got better, which seemed to validate everything that I was taught. Unfortunately, that's not how it works, right? So you got people coming in there who I'm trying to sort of talk away from, from the edge of the cliff of all that. And you've got people coming in from the other side with no manual therapy experience. And I'm teaching them this, this generic, fuzzy way of touching people that's demanding feedback and not saying, here's what I'm doing to your tissue. Uh, I, it took me a while to get comfortable, kind of in the middle of those two extremes. But now I, I, I kind of thrive on that. Just let's start from scratch. What do we know? What do we, who's in front of us, right? What's their problem? What's their story, as you asked me, right? Because I think the narrative, the story is hugely important. And it's what I leave a lot of time for with my patients. And I leave a lot of time for in my seminars when I'm teaching people. And sometimes maybe we need to respect the narratives that our colleagues have or that the people mm -hmm. other clinicians have and treat it in a we don't want to say treat them like a, a patient but just respect their time respect where they're coming from and work with their narratives and kind of yeah. guide them towards more helpful less false less wrong narratives yeah i had a, a bunch of years ago i taught a class and there was a new grad uh, doctor physical therapist came to the class and he he had been well schooled in pain science. He'd been hanging out on social media and seeing some of the common forms that we're all on. And he came to the class and I, you know, he's, here he is, a brand new grad working from a predominantly, a model predominantly informed by pain science. And a lot of it was non-contact based intervention. And he told me the reason he took my class is he liked, um, I'm paraphrasing now, he liked that my approach was non-denominational. I didn't I didn't view it as a, a story, the dogma, the, almost the religious fervor that tissue-based stories are often um, worshipped with, right? He liked the way I taught the work and he felt that um, the work that he wanted to do based on pain science, yes, it could be exercise, but there was a time, there are times when touch helps, when manual therapy does seem to have an impact. 
And he was looking for an easy, well, not an easy, but a non-denominational way to um, include manual therapy into his pain science perspective. And I thought that was pretty cool. And the, the narratives that you'd use to explain that to, to say your colleagues, so for the, the mm -hmm. therapists out there, so it's, there's huge power in putting hands on someone. There's an, en you're engaging what is meaningful to them. You're engaging the, the nervous system, the structures obviously, but them as a whole person. What are some of the, the narratives that you, you use to explain the, the mechanisms, the, the awesome effects that you can see in clinic? Um, in terms of to a patient or to another clinician? Let's, let's talk for uh, a clinician. Okay. Um, from a clinician, we're going to, I start with about an hour long lecture on, on the could be's, right? Um, yeah, you know, it could be the, the tissue stories. We, we briefly unpackage a few of the tissue stories, but those are probably, even though they're the most popular in our fields, they're probably the least credible when it comes to the actual irrefutable evidence, right? We take a look at the nervous system perspective, you know, the extraspinal, the spinal, the brain center type perspective. Um, we take a look at placebo. We take a look at sympathetic changes. We take a look at that. I, I just could refer to it as a cascade of possibilities, um, you know, all the way up the chain from cutaneous nerves to, you know, tunnel syndromes to the, the, the brain itself playing a big role in all this. There's a couple of papers that I really love to quote when it comes to the brain's influence in all this. And one, if, if your um, podcast population tends to be more physio-based, it might be a paper that, that they've not seen. It's a 2019 paper by a speech pathologist by the name of Nelson Roy. And he did a paper um, on um, muscle tension dysphonia, which basically is hoarseness, right? Hoarseness was viewed or is viewed as given the description of muscle tension dysphonia, dysphonia being poor voice, right? The view that there's too much tension in the laryngeal musculature. And the intervention is manual circumlaryngeal work, which is some moderately aggressive manipulation of the larynx. Originally viewed as we're reducing the muscle tension in the larynx, right? But then over the course of the last 25 years, the research has moved from, it's all about the things that happen here in the throat. And the parallels are uncanny when you look at the evidence in our field, right? Whether we're working in the throat or the, the foot, right? The thought that what we're doing here, the impact is felt and received and processed here, right? What Nelson did was he slipped his patient into a functional MRI machine and they took a look at this person's brain when she spoke. And they saw parts of her brain lighting up that they wouldn't expect. And they attributed that to the muscle tension dysphonia. And it's a, it's a, it's a multifactorial paper, not just the manual therapy part. But the cool part of that paper is while she was in the MRI, they did the manual circumlaryngeal work. And they literally watched her brain change in response to the input we were giving down here, right? They watched the brain change to back into more of a normal brain highlighting type of what should be lighting up when the person speaks. And to me, you know, that, that's not just about voice and, and muscle tension dysphonia. I think that, that in a nutshell, that may sum up a lot of what's happening when we do manual therapy, that we're, we're giving input in the periphery, but it's the central processor that's paying attention and potentially um, creating and contributing to the changes, be it pain or function or whatever that might be. And to me, that, that paper is a game changer. And I really like to see that sort of model come into the physio profession in terms of people doing work under those circumstances, because 
you know, the adage, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is a popular statement here in the United States, right? The thought that um, what we do here stays here is just so untrue. And I, I'm, I'm guessing most new grads have an idea that, you know, there's a lot more to it than the tissues. But I can tell you, at least in my country, with the, a lot of the people I encounter on social media, it really is easy to sell that what happens in Vegas story stays in Vegas. All right. So papers like that have really um, gone a long way to, to show me different possibilities. While we're on the, the topic of papers, there's a couple other papers that I've just come across recently. Uh, Joel Bialowski has written a couple papers um, talking about mechanisms of manual therapy modeling and approach um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, he's written some really neat papers taking a look at the potential, the, again, the cascade from, from the tissue-based story to the, um, the extraspinal, to the spinal, into the brain um, influence that, um, that might be at play when manual therapy is done. And taking a look at some of his graphs and his charts and his papers, uh, it, 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 it's a simple way to represent not just to clinicians, but maybe even to patients, that it probably isn't just about that scar or that trigger point or whatever you think is wrong here. Or um, if we're talking about the exercise-based community, the strength, the strength people, right? It's not just about, okay, you're having a problem because you're weak, we need to strengthen you there. I mean, I, I wanna see those narratives go away as much as I do the tissue-based story because to, to blame somebody's pain on weakness, I think is lazy. I think it's dishonest. I think to say, get stronger and life will be good. Yeah, exercise helps but seldom is it due just because we made that muscle stronger, right? There's so much work that needs to be done in our professions. And, you know, at least in terms of the manual therapy aspect, I hope that I'm sort of, um, you know, pulling the plug on a lot of the old stories that are out there. I think that it would be interesting to see what the future holds. And I, and it's so, it's frustrating that people uh, still perpetuate these narratives and perpetuate the, the post hoc fallacies. It's, and we, it's 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 in our world. So I'm a exercise professional. It's in the exercise physiology world. The the this is tight. Therefore, you need to stretch this. You need to strengthen the opposing side. It's like we're not puppets. We're we're yeah. humans. We're biological beings. There's more than one reason. I think it's it's so the reductionist narratives. It's it's I, I don't know. Do you think in future there's some hope for the kind of holistic, person-centered approaches, the narrative, the updated narratives? How, how do you think the future will hold with? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. I think it's a, I think it's the demand from you know the education process that therapists are going through now. Unfortunately, when you get out in the clinic, and I can't speak to your country, but I know in my country, I mean, I know I, I get a, a fair amount of patients. I have a small one-person manual therapy practice here in the upstate New York area, and, and like all of us, we get people who somebody else didn't help, so they come and see us, right? I mean, that's that's not uncommon at all. But the the times that I'm guessing you here, you know, um, my last therapist said, you know, I'm having back pain because I'm weak, right? I just think it, maybe the therapist actually said those words, right? Or maybe that's what the patient interprets or took from that message. And some of it may be, you know what, I, as a therapist, know it's more complex than that, but I got to tell you a simple story to get on with things. I think that's where we do our patients a disservice when we when we dumb things down too much, and that's what I really hope for our shared professions, whether it's you know the physio or all the other communities that I get a chance to engage with, is that over time we we allow ourselves to understand that it's much more complex and figure out elevator speeches to be able to explain that to the patient. 
The one thing that I do when it comes to explaining something with a patient is I'm, I'm trying to figure out, well, by listening to their story, right? What do you think it is? Daniel, you know, you've got this problem. What do you think it is? And that becomes a product of all the different people who told you this or your own beliefs, right? Um, I'm hearing it. I'm absorbing it. And I'm, in a way, I'm going to use that as part of the explanation. If you think I'm going to pick on trigger points because they're easy to pick on, right? If you think you're having that pain because you have trigger points, I'm going to at least acknowledge your belief in your past and what somebody's told you, you know, because eventually they're going to say to me, well, what do you think's wrong? Right? And I'm, I may say, Daniel, it could be those trigger points that your doctor says it is. Um, it also could be a neurologic remnant that, that your brain simply hasn't let go of, of an injury you had in the past. And so I give them more than one possibility. It could be that. It could be this. If they need more, I'll give them more, letting them know that there is uncertainty. But that's the point where I turn it. Instead of the mirror being pointed at me, giving them all the, you know, the, the diagnostics, um, I turn it around and I put it at them and I say, you know, it could be this, this, and this, but what do you feel right now? As I put my hand on you and I put pressure here or I stretch this or I do something manual therapy wise to your body, what do you think, right? Which is not always hard because they're paying me for my story, right? They're paying me for my, my expertise. They want, they want the full Monty of it, right? But I try and get that mirror turned around and it's like, okay, it could be that or that or that, but ultimately, we're trying to make you feel better. So when I do this, Daniel, does that feel relevant? Does that feel useful? Is there anything about this that feels dangerous? And if so, I'm going to stop it, right? I move them into the process of let's get out of what you think you, you want to hear. And what do you feel right now? What's your expectation in this moment? That's not great. an it's, easy process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, I love the, the words it could be and the, mm -hmm. the, the awesome word and. The, the fact that there could be more than one narrative yeah, and, yeah. And, you're, and you're asking them what they think and it's a process. So you're, you're individualizing the, the story, you're individualizing the explanation according to that person. Just like we would in, individualize an exercise program, we would individualize yep. our manual therapy approach, we'd individualize that explanation as well. Yep. So that and kind I really of think this kind of approach. approach. Exactly. I really think the person-centered, the patient-centered approach couldn't be applied across the board, whether it's a manual therapy-based approach or even an exercise-based approach, right? To me, one of the worst things I see is, again, is when the patient comes in with this long list of things that the, their last therapist or their, their present therapist gave them to do. And I, and I ask them, what do you feel when you're doing it? And sometimes I say, I feel like I'm doing a lot of things that the therapist said should be good for me, right? And then I ask them, do you feel, do you feel a connection, right? Because to me, if you're going to give a patient an exercise or a stretch or anything, I think that something up here should kick in and say, oh, yeah, I can feel it. I feel why he gave me that exercise, whether it's because it's addressing that area that I perceive as weak or it's addressing that area that I perceive as tight. Something about the homework, something about the intervention on, that happens in our room, all of it should connect with the patient's perspective. So they say, yeah, I get this. I think, I think that's one of the intangibles in our profession that doesn't get enough um, attention and credit, getting into the patient's perspective more than our perspective as the expert. It's not about us, it's about them and what they think. So we're, right. we're kind of adapting according to, to what, what, they're say, what they're telling us and what, yeah. what they think is relevant. So yeah, I, I hate that laundry list of, of 10 exercises and, and the idea that more is better, just a yeah. generic yeah. 
sheet of yeah. exercise that we see. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it, it brings the, the profession down and it, and it makes people think that that's what, that's what to expect. Because then they show right. that exercise sheet of paper to their friends and family. Yep. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't like the words that I use a lot when it comes to clinicians, because I think that that sort of approach is an ego-based approach. It's one that we base on our expertise, our training, our knowledge, which, which is our ego, right? And we're applying our ego in the way we feel best. And I can't, we can't totally eliminate our ego, right? It's a part of the process, right? But can we balance it with the patient's expectations? And that's the, the one thing that I call into a lot is the, is the evidence-based model when it comes to the work that I do in the work that I teach is, yeah, we need the evidence. We need our experience applying the evidence. But what about that ground floor of the evidence-based model? Truly, one-third of the evidence-based model is patient perspectives and preferences. And I really think that is, you know, it's just given lip service, at least um, the way I see manual therapy, physical therapy, speech pathology, occupational therapy, massage, like all of them, right? I see the patient perspective and preference really um, being a, a distant third. I, I truly believe that I'm elevating it to an equal weighting with the evidence that I use to support the work, my experience applying this, but then demanding that that patient play a role. And giving them the, the power. So you're empowering them with your, your words and it's not like you're fixing them with your, with your touch. So, exactly. so going back, exactly. yeah. So, so with the, just going back to your explanations, your, you're going from the, the tissue based narrative into the, the neurocentric, into the therapeutic relationship, the mm -hmm. context, the, the fact that you're creating a safe environment. What, mm -hmm. if we were to, to pie chart it out, I know it's a, it's a, perhaps a reductionist question now thinking about it. If we were to think of the, the main factors, say, the priorities for the approach where we have the therapeutic alliance, the safe contextual environment, the, and, the, and the other mechanisms, which ones mm -hmm. would you prioritize in your encounter with, with a person, with a human being? All of them. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I think the safe context of intervention, of touch, of permission-based um, goes a long way. Um, for some people, it doesn't matter much because they're already coming with that expectation. Um, I, I think from, oh man, if I, if I had to pick somewhere on the cascade, um, you know, we're using the tissues as a handle to get to the brain, to get to the perception, to get to the cognitive behavioral aspect of this. I, I don't want to discount tissues completely um, because we do use them as our handle, okay? Um, I don't believe most of the tissue-based stories, even though I still have to sometimes tell a tissue-based story to people because that's part of what they're coming in with, right? I know some good tissue-based stories. I know decent neurologic narratives, but I think, I think the behavioral aspect of the work is the most important, right? To me, the most important aspect is that when they get up off my table, they feel different. There's a difference that's felt and somebody say, well, that's just going to be temporary. Well, I used to believe that to be true and we do need to make, um, help them make lasting change, right? But the goal is for them to get up off my table or wherever we're working and feel that something has been altered. And if they want to know what, sit back down because it's going to take a while to, to explain, right? Because the goal of my work isn't to make your fascia looser. The goal of my work is to help you move back out into the community and to move 
with with less fear and greater ease, right? Um, and I believe movement is therapeutic, whether you dose it as exercise or strengthening or dancing or running or walking, right? My goal is to get them up. So in, in, in moving more freely, and I think a lot of it really is cognitive behavioral in, 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 um, in nature. Did I answer your question? Um, I'm, I'm not really sure if I did. Did I? In a convoluted way, yes. Yes, it did. I'm, I'm good at so that. Then, I'm good at convolution, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, and there's never just a straight answer. So. So we touched on a lot, you touched on a lot of topics that were relevant, and with with the with the the kind of symptom modification that you mentioned, it you used to think that it was temporary. Could you expand on that? Where where I'm assuming you I don't want to make assumptions, but that kind of therapeutic effect can then, or you're hoping that it would affect their lives outside the clinic. It would. Right. get them engaged more in the movements, the thoughtless, fearless movement that they wanted to do or they had been doing before pain. Right. Well, the, the reason I said that, that, that getting up off the table might just be temporary. Some of it was based on some of the stories that I, I, I was taught um, and some of which I used to teach in terms of, you know, um, if we're going to go into that fascia rabbit hole, in order to make lasting changes, we need to get rid of the tissue memory out of the system. And it takes a while to get rid of that tissue memory based on the, the perceived properties of fascia. And while I kind of saw that happen in practice, I also realized that for a lot of people, that's a really damn good sales tool to say, this is going to take a, a while. It might take a long time because there's a lot of memory in your fascia that we need to unravel and unwind, right? And, oh, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I really want to get rid of this. And you just created a vulnerable, gullible patient who's willing to, to buy into what you're willing to sell them, right? And I, you know, it's, I understand that. We're all, in the, we're all in this to make our living, and it's easy to sell people on what they're asking for, and it's easy to sell people that it's going to take a long time. So when they get up off the table, I, I, I used to tell a variant of, you know what, um, you may feel good. Now. I didn't, I wasn't negative about it, right? But some of this might return. We just need to keep at it, right? Now, when they get up and they say, well, I feel better, but how long will it last? And I say, well, I don't know. Why don't you see how long it lasts? Because I believe right now in this moment, if you feel better, that it's, yeah, maybe it is about the tissues, but it's about your brain saying, hey, maybe I'm not as damaged as I thought I was. Because I think that sort of message, that positive message that you're not as hurt as you thought you were, um, may play a big role in allowing you to move through this faster than you think you may have, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, in life, I'm a glasses half full person. And I've kind of taken that now to, to my clinic as well, that, you know what, it might take more, but just appreciate right now how good you feel and go out there and do things differently. One of my favorite homework assignments for people, because when we're done, they expect me to give them the laundry list of things, right? And whether it's, you know, a whole bunch of stretches or a whole bunch of exercises, right? And they'll say, well, what should I do to keep this going? And the thing that I'll say to them often is, well, I think that one of the biggest things you can do to keep this good feeling is to appreciate that you can feel good, right? And when you wake up tomorrow, if you feel good, um, it's not that you, you need to thank anybody for it, but just pay attention to that and say, okay, here I am. I'm doing better again today. Um, reinforcing the positive instead of the fear that if you don't do all these things, you're going to regress back into that place you were. And yet, you know what? Our exercise, the strengthening, the movement, the stretching, et cetera, et cetera, all those might help. But sometimes I think the changes that happen, they take place up here as much as they do down where we think they do. Bit of the 
cognitive reframing that leads to the long-term changes you'd say i believe so yeah and you know everybody's different um we we have to treat everybody as the end of one what is this person what do i need to do for them what do i need to do with them um to help them and you know what we've got a lot of different strategies at our disposal and sometimes i'm reaching into that tool bag and trying lots of different things sometimes you nail it on the first time sometimes we don't nail it at all but i'm willing to keep trying and so what would you suggest then for for the manual therapists out there who are delivering these these passive interventions to still make sure that that person kind of develops that that independence that self-efficacy after the session um so i i have to laugh at, at the phrasing of the manual therapy as a passive intervention because i recognize that um from a couple um, well-known people on social media that in terms of manual therapy being ineffectual because it's passive, it never engages the patient. And I think if I, if I frame the, the environment here, so they're laying on my table, receiving everything, they get off and there's nothing more um, beyond that, I think it is a passive intervention. But if, if there's a simple switch that turns on when they're done with this quote-unquote passive intervention and they feel like they can move easier, it instantly becomes active to me, all right? Um, it's not active in the way that we're loading people's joints or giving them all sorts of strengthening things, right? But the active part of it is if they get up off our table, right, from that passive intervention, and they feel that they can do things easier, smoother, or better, um, I think activity, the, the active component immediately comes into play. And that's the one thing that I would stress in terms of if you're doing nothing but passive, realize that what's your goal? Your goal, sure, it might be to help them get out of pain, but what will that help them do? To me, as a physical therapist, that's basic goal setting, right? It's like, what's your goal? If your goal is to reduce pain, that's lovely. But I think reducing pain in and of itself should be attached to something active, something functional, right? What's the functional outcome that, you, that the patient's seeking? It could be just pain, right? But I like to go a little deeper. I like to pull a little harder. What would less pain allow you to do? There comes the active component of manual therapy right love it it's a it's a collaboration between the therapist and the and the the patient it's not like they are lying asleep or they're just kind of distracted from the pain from the symptoms you're kind of you're involving them in the process you're asking them questions that make them think a little bit or that give you that information that makes it meaningful to them and then you're providing them a narrative that is 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 empowering is less less threatening you're not giving them exercises just for the sake of, of doing exercises as well and they're they're leaving feeling better and they're leaving able to do the things that they want to do or doing the things that they would be doing had they had no pain right and they still need they're going to need coaching right to some degree they're going to need our ego to come in and coach them in terms of what can they do what should they do what might they do right some, some people, it's, it's like the bell curve. Some people, they, they get off, up, off the table and they say, I can run again. And they go back out and they do that. And you never see them again until it's at the grocery line, right? Something like that. Other people, they need coaching. They need their handheld. They need the stretches, the exercises, the strengthening, et cetera. Um, I don't do a, that strengthening model here in my clinic, but we talk a lot about, about movement based on their perspectives. I, um, for a number of years, I shared office space with an independent orthopedic surgeon, and she had a, uh, 
um, we had a sign in our waiting room that one of her kids had drawn for her. And the sign said, the best exercise is the one you'll do, right? The best exercise is the one you'll do, not the one I tell you to do, right? But the one that you'll do because you love doing it. So let's make, let's make that active component something that has great meaning for the patient versus something that I think from my ego is good for you or important. Love it. Love it. And it's, it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's not just because we like strength training or just because someone else likes Pilates, just because another yep, person yep. likes yoga. doesn't mean that we yep, have to yep. instill our own biases to that person. Yep. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. not that it hurts to, to offer it up, right? If you believe that strengthening is, is, is effective, right? Um, my guess is that, that patients self-select before you walk it, they walk in your door. They've seen your website. They've heard feedback. They know that, that Daniel's an exercise-based guy, right? They're not walking in expecting um, my warm, fuzzy table approach, right? Because people walk into my office and seldom do they, do they run screaming because I don't have exercise-based equipment. They've seen my website, they've watched some of my videos, um, they've gotten feedback from people. They self-select by walking in my door and saying, you know what, I wanna try what you have to offer me, right? And to think that um, because you're an exercise-based therapist and ev all your patients get better, you assume that, that, there is, that therefore that's the best, that's, that's really limited. Just like the same thing applies to somebody in my role, to think that just because we help patients, to think that that applies to the bell curve of humanity, I think is really short-sighted. I, we have they, there's something out there for everybody and they need to shop us right they do shop us 100 percent, and it's and it's their choice as well in terms of the interventions it's their choice in terms of the the people they seek so the private yep. healthcare world they um and the marketing involved in it so they there are people that aren't ready for the active approach they're people that see a, a few weights and they run away as you mentioned yep and yep. there are yep. other people that that are perhaps more of the, they've already got that exercise background. They respect someone in that field already that's knowledgeable in those sporting areas. They would, so there's, there's a whole, like you said, it's a bell curve. So we're, we're yeah. targeting and we're offering our services to help everybody, not just the people that we like or that like us or that right. fit our biases. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I've got, I've got one last question for you, Walt. I respect your time on the other side of the world as you, as you get on with a busy day. We've got, um, what advice would you give to, to physical therapists, we'll say, in the field who, who come across evidence that goes against their beliefs? Um, embrace it. Embrace it, right? I, it, we're always going to find it. I, in, if you only read the evidence that supports your bias, right, you're never growing or learning. Um, I did that for years, um, and it's, it's not until I started looking at the evidence that conflicted with my bias that I think I really started to grow. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of good information out there, not only in our physio profession, whether it's the exercise or the manual therapy perspective, but moving beyond into other domains, other disciplines, even the, the cognitive behavioral type of approach to see that there's a lot for us to learn and ways we can apply it to patients. So when you come up with conflicting evidence, you know what? Chew on it for a while. Don't immediately discard it. Amazing. And, and become aware perhaps of the biases that you have as well going into it so that you develop that critical yeah. thinking skills that you, you mentioned that it took a while for you to develop. It took, a, took quite a few years. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm still I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm still, you know, realizing that I am working from my 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 confirmation bias constantly. Um, but you're just trying to undo some of those those old messages. And it, it is a process. Amazing. It, it's not it's not yeah. a destination. It's a, it's a process. So there you go. Yep. Well, yep. yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I know there was a lot of valuable takeaways there from not only the, the people that are biased towards manual therapy, but also the exercise professionals like myself to see what kind of narratives are out there that are helpful, what kind of reframing the passive interventions as not just someone lying down on a table and expecting to be fixed. Right. And, and working with people to know that there are people on, there are people that aren't ready perhaps for the active approach. There are people that uh, would suit different approaches and there's more than one way to skin a cat as they say right right so and if you'd like i could we can link some of these papers from um in, in terms of this podcast as well if anybody's interested in any of the papers that i talked about uh, a little earlier absolutely all right. we, we'll all right. thanks daniel appreciate your time you're more than welcome thank you so much paul okay bye bye, -bye.